0: Parenting for me is one of the most rewarding jobs I've ever had. I feel like it's the most rewarding job on earth. It's also the most challenging. Every single child, every single teenager, every single one of us has a need to be seen, first and foremost, by our Heavenly Father. But we also have a need to feel seen by those that we love and those that we do
1: life with Well, good morning. It is so great to have you here with us on this summer day. I for one am excited about Taco Fest. Lizzie didn't mention this. We will be voting on the best protein upstairs and it is a fierce competition. So, we need all of your help to figure out who's going to win. Uh, I think we may even have a trophy. It's going to be great. We'd love to see you upstairs afterwards. As Lizzie said, we're in this new series on U+ parenting. I realize that as a church that is largely filled of young professionals who don't necessarily have kids, uh, this could feel a little strange to you. But uh, this week in particular, and next week, we're going to lean into mental health. We're going to talk about what mental health looks like in parenting, as Lizzie already did a great job setting us up. I hope there's really something here for you uh, personally, as you reflect on your own mental health, as you reflect on how you may have been parented. However, I I do want to make the case as we talk about U Plus Parenting that there's likely some child, even now, in your life, right? Could be a kid, could be a teenager, could be a child that's yours, could be a niece, nephew, some of you here are teachers, some of you uh, are just connected with friends who are starting to have kids. So I wanted to show you a photo of uh, the kids in my life. So go ahead and put this up on screen. I mean, that's that's about as cute as they ever look. I I wanna (laughs) be clear. That is not normal, uh, that, that sort of happy contentedness. Hazel is our daughter on the left here. She's almost four. She's out in the lobby probably having a good time. She looks like she's four going on 30 in this photo. Uh, love, love our little Hazel. And then Hayden is on the right. It's Hazel and Hayden. And uh, what I would give to be that content holding a toy train. Anyone else feel like you just want to live Hayden's best life? Uh, together, those two. So those are my kids, but I think you probably, some of you serve in Kid City, and thus you can picture my kids, but I want to give you a chance to picture a kid in your life. So go ahead if you're comfortable, just close your eyes for a second, and I want you to picture the kid that you have. Again, these may be grown-up kids, these may be teenagers, these may be students, these may be niece, nephew, friends, kids, your kids, or kids you even hope one day to have. And as you hold these kids in mind, uh, as Lizzie said, we're going to enter into a little bit of deep waters this Sunday, um, but as you picture them, I just even now want to encourage you, if you're comfortable, to just pray for them. Like, you don't have to say it out loud, but in, inside, just even with their names, offer a simple prayer, as we're going to talk about how heavy it can be these days to be a kid. Okay, you can go ahead and open your eyes. Uh, this morning, as we continue with the series on plus Parenting, there's actually a very profound cultural shift that we are in the middle of, just in case you haven't noticed it. Uh, The shift is this convulsion around what it means to be a parent, uh, why we want a parent, if we, in fact, even will be a parent. And as we think about this shift, I want to put a graph. Uh, You're welcome. Love a good graph. Uh, We've been going after graphs the last few weeks. This is the only one I have this morning. Uh, You'll notice, though, that this graph tells a very interesting story. This is the trend in US birth rates. And uh, typically, in birth rates, You see birth rates climb when the economy is good, uh, when the country's pretty stable, when there's not a lot going on. So there's that period there, sort of 80s, 90s, post-Cold War, where things were going really good. Then we entered the Gulf War. You saw it take a little bit of a dip. The 90s had a little bit of convulsions. But uh, 2000s were pretty steady. There's a mini dip, if you notice right there, in 2001, uh, after September 11th. But then we were kind of climbing up until the year 2007. And this is interesting, you can Google it. Uh, I've been doing some reading on it this last week. Uh, Sociologists really don't know why after 2007 we didn't just decline. Uh, They do know why we declined in 2007. There was the recession that happened. Um, But they can't quite explain why we haven't picked back up. You see how most ebbs find sort of a balancing peak uh, that comes. And right now, we are in the longest decline in U.S. birth rates that's happened since the Great depression in the 1930s. And the the most recent estimate I saw, it's kind of hard to tell with millennials because millennials are still in the middle of having kids. We might rally, we might pull a few more kids out of the hat uh, before some of us are done. Uh, But currently millennials are at 0.5 children per, per married couple. 0.5. Point 0.5. It used to be over two, well over two kids per household. Now we're down to point 0.5. Um, this, is, this is genuinely concerning if you've done any reading on uh, cultures in Japan, uh, cultures over in China. Uh, when birth rates go down, uh, economies eventually are going to suffer, workforce is going to deplete. Like this is, this is a problem that politicians are currently wrestling with. Yet the question is, why is the birth rate down, right? Why, why has it been so low? And just anecdotally, My wife and I uh, have just entered our 30s, we have our own two kids, but anecdotally we're talking to friends and I would say more than I ever anticipated, friends who are sort of nearing their 30s, entering their 30s, more than ever are starting to say to themselves, do we really even want to have kids? Like this is a real genuine live question. So this morning to talk about U Plus Parenting, I wanna lean into an attempt to answer why I think the birth rate is down so low and then try to give some vision really what the scriptures would have to say in response to all of this so uh, if you're ready to journey with me um the next uh stats i want to show you uh, no more graphs but i do want to give you some stats i think one of the reasons why the birth rate is down right now is that we can sense as a culture that there has been a monumental shift around mental health struggling with mental health You've heard us talk about this before, you've probably seen this over the last 15 years or so. The uh, rates are staggering when it comes to struggling with mental health as a culture in general, but specifically Gen Z, who we have the most data on right now, this generation coming up, Gen Z is anywhere from the age of 14 to 26, 27, something like that. Uh, Gen Z, staggeringly, in the last six months, uh, one in two, report having prolonged experiences of depression in the last six months. One in two people in Gen Z. One in four report having been diagnosed with mental disorder in the past two years, right? This could be anything from uh, depression. This could be uh, severe anxiety. This could be some sort of mental health issue. One in four, but probably most sort of crushing and uh, despairing is that currently this was a recent report that came out from McKinsey who was surveying over 3,000 Gen Z uh, employees in the workplace, so those over the age of 22. And they discovered that one in seven reported considering or attempting suicide in the last year. Like these stats did not exist if you look at any of the data before 2007, but now we have this crisis on our hands where we are profoundly struggling with why we should even be alive let alone with whether or not we should have kids, right? So uh, I think if I was to try to give you a reason, I mean, there's so many reasons why since 2007, the birth rate has been going down. One clear reason would be in 2007, uh, the iPhone and social media started to really fill our airwaves and our space and our experiences, which we've seen have a lot of correlation to mental health. Uh, But one of the reasons why I think the birth rate itself is down is uh, this next reason I'm going to put on the screen the connection between hopelessness and our happiness hopelessness and happiness so let me explain uh there's really three core messages i think going on here in the american experience that are causing us to feel so hopeless when we look at the next generation gen z in the way that they are profoundly struggling with mental health and when we consider whether or not we should have kids the first message goes something like this, and you can tell me if I'm on the right track, if this resonates at all with you. Uh, one of these core messages of being an American is, if I am a good person, life should not be hard, right? Sit with me for just a second in this, because none of us say this out loud, right? I mean, we don't talk to our friends about this. We don't, we don't sort of reason this out in public. We don't post, like, I am a good person, and therefore life should not be hard. But Uh, intuitively, inside us, there's this sense of like, if I'm trying my best to be good, if I'm like a good employee, if I'm a good friend, if I'm like a good spouse, if I'm a good, you know, co-worker, then at some level, like, life shouldn't be that hard, right? And yet, when we find life to be filled with hard things, we start to feel the pressure on this question inside, like, well, am I good person then? Like, am I good enough? Was I doing something wrong? Like, am I ever going to be happy if I was trying to be good and goodness did not keep me from life getting so hard? Uh, If that's one message, the next is related. If I am a good person, I should repress negative emotions. Because what starts happening as a good person is that you're living your life and you're going through your job and there's a couple bumps and bruises in the road and maybe you lose your job at some point or there's a friendship that kind of falls apart or you break up with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. And suddenly these negative emotions are starting to swirl around. But if our first commitment is that life shouldn't be hard, then these negative emotions are pretty distressing. They start to signify to us like something is going wrong with me being a good person. And so we do everything we can to avoid those negative emotions, uh, to prove this to you, let me ask: Last time that you bumped into a friend on the street, or maybe you go into your uh, workplace on Monday, or maybe you even go into the Zoom chat room, right? The awkward first three minutes on Zoom, where uh, on Monday everyone's like, "So, uh, I guess we're doing this again, right? Uh, here we are. Like, let's start talking. Uh, how are you? Like, what's going on?" When that moment happens, and the person says, "How are you doing?" When was the last time you said, "Honestly, I'm not doing." very well <laughs> right that's not how we talk that's not how we communicate instead the typical answer which kind of defies our approach to negative emotions is I'm, I'm good i'm good right like it's been okay yeah no i mean it was like there's some things this weekend but you know I'm, I'm good and what does the person do oh good good okay so anyways uh let's jump into work right so i've got five things that i need you to get done this week um if that's all true My argument to you this morning, and this is me gesturing, I could be wrong, Uh, you can push back on me on this. Um, My argument this morning is that I think connected to these first two, uh, there's been a, a deep understanding among millennials that if I am a good parent, that means my child's life should not be hard, right? If I think if I'm a good person, my life shouldn't be hard, well, then that's doubly true for my child, that if I'm a good parent, their life won't be hard. And yet, statistically, we've got this whole generation of parents, we're watching them as Gen Z is like falling apart right now, as it's deeply, deeply struggling with all these different pressures and cultural changes. And so I think there is a deep hopelessness going on in our culture right now around parenting, because we are deeply distressed by the mental health challenges taking place in our kids. And so if we're going to address this at all, we have to actually face into this. We've got a name that this has been happening, and we want to, as a church, offer you some tools in how we, how you could address it, not only first starting in your own life, right, if you yourself are struggling with mental health, uh, but then also being able to offer this to others. So in just a minute, This week and next, we have the privilege as a church of getting to interview Dr. Chinwe Williams. Uh, She's a psychologist. She's a big deal nationally. She's been writing books on working with children and teenagers in addressing anxiety and depression. And we, through a series of connections, I still haven't quite figured out who knew her or how they knew her, uh, but we managed to get her to come and to sit down with our lead pastor, Dave Ferguson. In just a minute, I'm going to give you this interview where she talks about what it looks like, what are the tools at our disposal for addressing this week, anxiety and depression, and next week she's gonna talk even more broadly about despair. But before I get there, I did wanna just take you biblically, biblically to a response, uh, to an engagement with whether or not these messages are true, because my observation to you would be, uh, these messages, as I've been living in the city, talking to city people, these messages are definitely resonant with non-religious people. Even though the rules can change and there's a lot of different definitions of what a good person means or looks like, I think if you talk to a person on the street, you ask them, do you think you're generally a good person? They'd say yes. Do you think life should be hard for good people? They'd say no. Then you ask them, well, what do you make of this terrible conundrum (laughs) that good people keep experiencing hard things? Then they'd probably tell you the Five or six different causes that they're excited about, right? The like couple of political parties they support, or maybe the ideologies that could help address all of this. Uh, but at the end of the day, a non-religious person is struggling with like, how do I summon hope if this is true to my experience? But if that's true for non-religious people, it is even more true, I would suggest, for religious people, uh, because at times, I've I've grown up in Christian communities. I know some of you here too have grown up in Christian communities. Man, the parenting stressors (laughs) in Christian communities trying to get their kids to look and behave good so that the community can think they've done a good job as parents, that they themselves are good people, are very real. And even more so in uh, religious communities, I've noticed that there can be a deep avoidance of negative emotions because negative emotions make us uncomfortable and maybe negative emotions lead to doubt. Maybe negative emotions cause us to have to re-examine whether God is taking care of us, providing for us in the way we'd hoped. And, and even more, that top statement, if I'm a good person, life should not be hard, gets kind of wrapped into our understanding of God to the point that even though we wouldn't say it, all of us kind of live with this hope and assumption that like, man, if I get up on Sunday mornings, I'm getting dressed and doing all this hard work to go to church and then maybe I'm even serving a church and I'm in a small group and I'm giving my money to church, well then like surely God will take some care of me, right? Like surely God's gonna protect me from some of the hard things. And so as we wrestle with this, I just wanna ask, does the Bible support these messages? Does the Bible support these messages? I think very clearly it doesn't. And though I'm gonna be very brief here, I just wanna take you as one example to a psalm. Uh, This is Psalm 69. And I wanna offer you that the Bible, rather than avoiding hard emotions, rather than propping up this vision of happiness that says if you're just good enough, God's gonna take care of you, the Bible goes the complete opposite direction and offers picture after picture, in the psalms especially, of very vivid accounts of what we today would call Severe depression, right? So just listen to this opening uh, exploration by the psalmist. The psalmist is going to say, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Uh, That picture, I think, especially of I am worn out calling for help to the point that I can't even speak. My throat is parched. All this psalmist has done is cry to God over and over again, and yet the waters have been raising up. Here's the next passage, verse 4. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs on my head. Many are my enemies without cause. Those who seek to destroy me, I am forced to restore what I did not steal. I love here that this psalm gives a pretty good account of how the psalmist has tried to be a good person, <laughs> right? This is essentially the complaint that the psalmist is saying as they're walking through this deep depression they're struggling with. They're like, I tried. I tried to give my enemies good things. Like, I tried to help them out. I tried. And I found like all that happens is they keep taking and taking and taking that which I didn't even steal. I'm forced to restore. What's going on with this? Goodness isn't really working for me, and life feels really hard. But it's not just trying to be good. Next passage, verse 7 to 9. Notice that the psalmist actually turns against God. (laughs) And the psalmist says, For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I'm a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. For zeal for your house consumes me, but the insults of those who insult you fall on me. This picture is kind of one in which the psalmist has really gone all in, in their worship of God, uh, zeal for the house of God, the temple at this point uh, was profound. And yet this passion for God has even turned their own family against them, right? They've literally found themselves ashamed and isolated and totally alone. Now, there's only one hermeneutic question that you have to ask as you are reading through a psalm of lament. Uh, There's many of these psalms in the book of, of Psalms. Uh, But with Lament Psalms, the fair question to ask is, is the psalmist accurately conveying reality around them, or is this just what the psalmist is feeling, right? The psalmist says, like, everyone's turned against me, nothing's working, Uh, this has gone terrible, I've called to God over and over again, but God's ignoring me. Um, It's possible that this has more to do with the psalmist's depression, (laughs) right, the experience in the moment of of total abandonment, forsakenness, which is often true for us when we ourselves are struggling with depression, than what's actually true going on around them. Yet, even if that's the case, a couple of lessons that I want to pull out here before we head into this interview. Um, In biblical lament, we are relentlessly reminded, first, that we are not the first people to face hard things and feel hopeless as a result, right? The psalmist's words were capturing utter hopelessness that anyone was going to come, that any resolution was going to take place. Yet second, interestingly, the lament invites us to consider that God may actually want to hear the full weight of the emotions we're feeling. I love that the Bible does not editorialize the psalms of lament. It doesn't look at this psalm and say, hey, uh, just so you know, like, uh, this wasn't actually happening. There are some friends. Like, we promise this is all going to get worked out. Just give it a few months. Uh, he needs to take some Xanax. She needs to, like, recover a little bit, and we're going to be okay. No, that's not what the psalms of lament do. Instead, the psalms of lament say God wants to know exactly where you're at. God does not want you to repress or avoid these negative emotions. In fact, God is willing to embrace even your complaints against God finally and this leads us into the interview there are tools there are tools in the psalms of lament that are going to help us and also could help our children to face the hard things we're dealing with this to me is the profound hope that we as a community have to recover if we're going to enter into parenthood if we're ever going to face attempting to do this very challenging and overwhelming thing of inviting a child into a world which we ourselves are struggling in, that we ourselves are kind of contesting, We're going to need to know that there are actually tools that the Bible can give us to face the hard things that we're exploring this morning. So for that reason, I do want to turn over to this interview, Dr. Chinway Williams. Uh, She's got two books that have come out. I'll throw them up on the screen here. One is called Seen. The other is called Beyond the Spiral. Both are very helpful, uh, again, even for adults, but especially if you're thinking through parenting. And uh, she and our lead pastor, Dave Ferguson, are going to have a really helpful conversation before I come back up to close this out. So here we go.
2: Dr. Chinway, thanks so much for being here. Been looking forward to this conversation. And I'll tell you what, if you're okay, I'm going to just jump right in. Absolutely. All right. What are some of the typical signs of anxiety and depression in children and students?
0: Yeah, great question. The first sign that I would say that indicates some degree of distress in a child or a student is irritability, which a parent might be laughing right now because their child may be displaying irritability quite a bit. Uh, but if this is unusual, and if it's happening more days than not, that's something that we just want to watch. Anxiety, first, if I can just define it, is excessive worry about something that's happening currently or something that's happening in the future. It's an overestimation about something bad happening in the future and an underestimation about your ability to manage it. Uh, so it's what if this happens that's catastrophic and will I be able to manage it? So that's anxiety. Um, With depression and with anxiety, there also are some physical symptoms that I would think that parents or loved ones would look out for that includes headaches, stomach aches, muscle pains that really aren't explained by any other condition. Really persistent thoughts of the future and for depression, hopelessness. And worthlessness, I would say a symptom that people aren't really aware of is guilt. Oh. Yes. So guilt is related to depression and um, avoidance of things that normally kids would find pleasurable or enjoyable. If you're noticing that your child or your teenager is no longer engaging in those things, uh, that's something that we would really want to look into.
2: Okay, so children and students, I mean, like us, we all have our ups and downs. What are maybe the red flags that you're going like, okay, that's that's a red flag. We need to pay special attention and, and note that.
0: If you have a child who's typically gregarious, fun-loving, energetic, playful, and then all of a sudden they are more avoidant or withdrawn or they're not engaging in the same way, that's something that we want to pay attention to. If they're also having thoughts of um, that's sort of like negative, and we all experience those things, as you mentioned, from time to time, but if it's happening more days than not, in a two week period of time, that's when we're a little bit if not concerned, we really want to pay attention to other signs.
2: So a two week period of time that yes. if it extends beyond that, then that's kind of a red flag.
0: Yes. Okay. Absolutely. For For depression. For anxiety, if you think about it, anxiety is a part of life. Stress is a part of life. Everything that we've faced in the last few years has been stress-inducing. So that's a little bit different because that's naturally going to come when we're worried or when life feels chaotic or confusing. But for anxiety, that is sort of in a category that's more clinical in nature. We're going to see that across a six-month period of time.
2: Okay, six months. Okay, that's super helpful. Yeah. Sometimes it's like we so badly want to do the right thing, but it's kind of like we don't know what to say or we don't know what to avoid saying. Can you give us some tips on that? What what should we? No, don't say that. Avoid saying that. But do say this.
0: One of the biggest ways that we fail to see our kids is when we minimize disregard or ignore their emotions, especially when the emotions are really big and powerful and we as parents or adults can get triggered by them. Uh, so we don't want to say anything like, you know what? You shouldn't feel this way. So for example, if you're getting ready for, I don't know, a canoe trip and you have your youngest child express a lot of fear or trepidation, but everyone else is excited about it, right? It's sort of natural to say, "We're good," but then what you're saying to the child is something is wrong with you. And the other thing that we want to avoid saying especially to boys is it's not okay to cry. Or crying is weak or showing weakness in some way. And so sometimes that's also said to girls, but we really want to avoid that because then that causes suppression of emotions when we really want expression of emotions. And we want to be able to teach our kids how to do that in a healthy way. So those are some of the things that I would avoid generally.
2: All right, that's good. So that's what we should avoid saying. Yes. But I'd love to know, what should we say?
0: Yes. So in the book, we talk about right brain languaging. So that's expressing emotion based on what you see that your child is feeling. Sometimes Mm. that's hard. You can ask. They may not be able to really recognize what it is that they're feeling. But you can say, I can tell that this is really hard for you. Or for really little kids, you can say, I can tell that you're feeling something big. Tell me more about that. Asking them how they're feeling, asking them to describe how they're feeling. And then for me, this is really the most important thing as a caregiver or a parent, asking how you can support them.
2: If we care about a child or a student who's struggling, what would you say is the most important? Like, here's the one, I mean, if let's start there, the most important thing we can do.
0: Let me begin by sharing that study after study indicates that um, the greatest predictor, of a child's success is not their IQ, it's not how well they do in school. Those things are fine. The greatest predictor of a child's success is the presence of at least one caring adult figure, consistently. Mm. So as consistent as you possibly can, and this is for parents, this is for grandparents, this goes for coaches, this goes for ministry leaders, show up, show up consistently, show up, when it's inconvenient, and this is really, really important, show up for the child or the student in terms of what matters most to them. So not when you've got a free Saturday to do what you want to do, but thinking about what's going to be interesting and stimulating for them.
2: So what matters most to them?
0: Yes. So yes. you
2: you talk about this in your book, Scene, in Chapter 3. Yeah. And, and I was couldn't help but reflect kind of on my own life. And, I mean, I had parents who by God's grace, I mean, yeah. I mean, my baseball games, my basketball games, they showed up. I even had aunts and uncles who, they would show up. And so you're saying, are those, is that the kind of thing you're talking about?
0: Yeah, so those big milestone events, those tournaments, those recitals, graduation, every student I've ever talked to loves being able to look up in the stands and know that their parents are there. So we want to show up in those big milestone moments. We also want to show up when they're hurting. And parents do such a great job and leaders do a great job. When kids are hurting, especially physically, we mama bear swoop in, we papa bear swoop in. But here's what the research is showing. And here's what my students are telling me in the therapy room. They also want adults to show up before they're asked to, in the mundane, and the routine situations, but show up with intention. So car rides, like what are those moments in the rhythms of your day, the rhythms of your week, where you have just a few minutes with your child or your student to connect with them without an agenda. So it's not about, okay, let's talk about that quiz. It's not about, mm, you didn't take out the trash and we've had a conversation about that. Like what's going on? It's really showing up just to let them know that you're present and really hearing them share what's important to them is healing. And that's a display of empathy, which we now know through neuroscience is so helpful. So showing up doesn't lead to the healing. Showing up is the first step, as we call it, in the pairing process, similar to pressing that button on your Bluetooth portable speaker. Okay. It starts the pairing process, especially oh, that's good. yeah, for people who are hurting.
2: In the book too, you you bring this back to scripture, yeah. And you talk about how, how Jesus showed up.
0: Yeah, I would love to hear <laughs> just just
2: share with that. Would well, you? Jesus
0: showed up all over the place, especially for individuals who were considered to be on the fringes of society, especially for those who were hurting. But let me tell you, my favorite scripture, which is also the shortest, Jesus wept.
2: Okay.
0: Jesus wept. He showed up. He showed up and he expressed empathy. So I find that that is probably one of the greatest examples of empathy. What did Jesus do? Jesus grieved with those who were grieving. Jesus wept because he experienced the pain that they were experiencing. So that's probably one of my favorite examples of showing up, which is the first step. And then when you're there, leveraging other tools, which is displaying empathy.
2: You have five tools, and we're not going to go there this week, but I think next week we're going to look at those five tools, So we'll come back to this. So let's jump a little bit ahead. At what point, then, do you need to bring in a professional?
0: When you're noticing that there are changes in behavior, so some behaviors that are not typical uh, for your child, when you're noticing that there are thoughts that are, you know, problematic or guilt-ridden, and your child is doing everything that they possibly can and they can't control it and you've intervened and expressed support, but the issue just doesn't seem to be waning. I think that's a great time to bring in the help of a professional and you can start with your pediatrician because pediatricians now are able to conduct behavioral health screenings and assessments because the need is so great and they're able to also Point parents to other professionals, such as mental health professionals, developmental specialists for additional support. So changes in behavior, and especially if you're noticing that your child is self-harming, and especially if you're noticing or you hear, because sometimes parents don't hear this firsthand from their child, but they hear it from the teacher or peers, that your child has expressed an indication that they're going to harm themselves or someone else.
2: Are there any resources that you would recommend as well?
0: Yes. So, two resources in particular. The first is for an emergency situation. If a parent or any adult or leader um, is just not sure about what they're seeing, they're picking up on some signs of distress, but they don't exactly know what to do, uh, but it's starting to feel like it's a crisis, 988 is the new emergency three-digit code that we have for emotional distress. Just call and speak to a trained professional who can talk to you about next steps. The second resource is a therapist database that's nationwide. It's called psychologytoday.com. And I use that as a resource. I've really used it probably for a decade because it offers families a chance to go online, filter through the different uh, therapists that are located by uh, zip code, By insurance, you can actually see photos of the therapist. You can filter by specialty area. You can filter by gender. You can try to find someone who is a Christian therapist. And so I think that it's a comprehensive way to try to find a therapist uh, nationwide.
2: The stats on, you know, what's really almost like an epidemic of struggling with mental health. I mean, it's almost overwhelming. But I'd love to hear from you. Where do you see hope?
0: I see hope everywhere. I see hope literally right now because we are engaging in this conversation. I see hope when we travel across the country and churches, oftentimes for the very first time or even having conversations around mental health, which five years ago, certainly a decade ago, um, it was difficult for me to say, hey, let's have this conversation. But the primary thing is I see hope in the character of our Heavenly Father. The character of our Heavenly Father who promises to complete what he started. And I always say to parents and caregivers or leaders, God is love. Like we know that. That's a truth. God is love. And when we display love and empathy to anyone that's hurting a child, a student, a coworker, our spouses, we are exercising a core part of who God is. So I have a whole lot of hope. In that
2: you don't just speak and you don't just do videos you and write books i mean you work with lots of children and lots of students and families do you have any stories though that of of, of students or children who've, who've found healing who found hope
0: i'm thinking of one particular um student uh at the time that i met her she was 15 years old and she had just lost her father and she had a A beautiful life, a happy life. She and her father were extremely close. So you can imagine just how devastating this was for her and and her family. She was brought to me by her small group leader. Wow. So I met her and her small group leader for the first time. And so what I noticed immediately was that she was, you know, just rallied by a group of people who loved her you know, the leader, but also the students. We worked hard. She worked hard in processing her grief. And actually, Dave, that was a trauma for her. So because it was so traumatic, it impacted her sleep. It impacted her relationships. Stopped going to classes because she would have panic attacks. Uh, but she kept showing up. And I kept showing up. And the people around her that loved her, her mother, her grandparents, small group, kept showing up. And I want to tell you, and this, this is a true story. She texted me two weeks ago. She is in college. She's doing extremely well, but she texted me because something was happening with her dog, and I won't go into too much detail. And she started experiencing anxiety, but this is what she said to me. I almost want to redo the text. She's like, I've been using those tools.
2: Oh, that's awesome. She's
0: like, so I'm okay. I don't need a session. <laughs> I was like, you can have a session if you want one. And she was like, I'm okay. She was like, I'm using those tools and I just want to let you know. So it was exciting to share. That's one, one recent story.
2: Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, Thank you so much. Thank you so much for, for sharing and uh, giving us these tools, but also giving us hope.
1: Thanks so much for having me. So I hope you can see what we are trying to lean into together as a church. I realize uh, it's messy. I realize some of us are hoping that there's some sort of miraculous mental health tool that's going to solve all our depression and anxiety and maybe can provide hope that our kids won't have to struggle with depression and anxiety. And yet, uh, I I think getting to hear someone like Dr. Chinway Williams talk about intentionally showing up is not only something you can do for the kid I asked you to picture at the start of this service, but is also something you can do uh, across across your life right now. For those who are hurting, even this morning, uh, we as a church want to show up for you. For those uh, who notice others around you might be hurting, it's such a simple intentional way for you to enter in, to show up with intention into a friend's life, into a co life, into uh, the life of somebody around you. Uh, before we close, though, I, I do want to take you back to the psalm, because uh, I realized I did lay a, a bit of a Big question on you: uh, Why are we not <laughs> having kids anymore? Why do we feel so hopeless when it comes to thinking about having kids, and what would it take for us to recover hope as a community if we were to actually face into the, the cost and the struggle of having kids ourselves? And if you go back to the Psalm, Psalm 69, uh, there's this pattern that happens in almost every psalm of lament. In fact, there's only one psalm of lament where this doesn't happen. Uh, that as you're reading through a psalm of lament, you tend to have this groundswell of complaint that's rising and rising. You can almost feel for most psalms, as we were reading it before, this growing distress. And for any of you who have struggled with anxiety, anyone who struggled with depression, there can be this sort of compounding factor, (laughs) right, to distress, like it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And yet, in almost every single psalm of lament, there's this moment where a break occurs. So I've actually highlighted it for you here. This is at the end of Psalm 69. And as biblical scholars have analyzed lament, they often call this the turn, (laughs) the turn of the lament towards trust. And as you ponder the psalm and what's going on behind the scenes in the psalm, we never really quite know what exactly happens to cause the turn. In fact, uh, one professor pointed out to me, it's possible that a psalmist is writing out their song of distress and it's growing and growing and getting worse and worse and they end up putting the page down. They, they set down the pen because they just hit that point of realizing they really don't have anything else to say and they set it down and they walk away. And in many cases, who knows how long it takes to switch from this verse 29 down to verse 30. And yet here at the turn, What we find is that the psalmist always receives the gift of hope at the end of every lament. Let me just read this to you. Here it says, As for me, afflicted and in pain, may your salvation, God, protect me. Here's the turn. I can now, I will now, praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. In fact, the psalmist continues. This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and hooves. The poor will see and be glad. You who seek God, may your hearts live. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his captive people. I realize as we're reading that, we haven't looked at the whole psalm, uh, the flow here is a complete and utter shift in perspective. The psalmist has turned from distress and despair to now this recovery of trust and hope. What has happened that has allowed the psalmist to recover (laughs) their hope? Well, most biblical scholars suggest that concretely in the psalmist's life, God shows up in some way, just like Dr. Chinway Williams was talking about. Whether this is just that reassurance, a sense of peace has come over the psalmist, maybe this concretely is somebody who has shown up in the psalmist's life. Maybe a family member has returned that they had previously felt rejected from. Uh, Maybe a change in their circumstance has occurred, right? Their their work, their life, uh, their community starts coming back to them in ways that had previously been lost. Or maybe, uh, profoundly, they sense the presence of God for some reason in their worship, in the flow of their lives. Whatever's going on, somehow God shows up to them and as God enters into their experience of distress, the psalmist is now able to return to such sweeping hope uh, that they're able to look and see, like, not only is God going to meet me in my distress, but God is going to help the poor. God can hear the needy. God is going to free his people. Um, I, think, I think we do actually get this as a culture, um, in fact, there's a story right now that my wife and I are reading over and over and over again with our kids. Uh, if and when you have kids and you have children's stories, pick them carefully because your children will force you to read them and ponder them uh, deeply hundreds and hundreds of times. And so the one that we are currently obsessed with is Grumpy Monkey. Anyone? Grumpy Monkey? No? Uh, that's fine. I can recite it from memory uh, for <laughs> you. Um, Grumpy Monkey is the story of chimpanzee. Who, yeah, it's good. It's good stuff. Uh, <laughs> classic literature. Um, Jim who wakes up, and for some reason, Jim just feels grumpy. And uh, you kind of ponder this with your child. Like, have you ever felt grumpy? Yeah, sometimes I feel grumpy. And his neighbor Norman uh, shows up. Norman's also a gorilla, and Norman comes and is trying to do everything possible to get Jim to stop being grumpy. So Norman is going to. Uh, try to dance with Jim, he's gonna try to sing silly songs, he's gonna try to walk around, and for some reason, Jim Pansy just still feels grumpy. Like it's just not working, it's not getting better, and as a reader you're kind of like, what is, what are we about to teach these kids right now? (laughs) Like this is, (laughs) this is a little intense, and yet at the end of the story, uh, there as Jim Pansy is struggling, he goes and sits by himself after shouting at all his friends, he still feels grumpy, Um, and then in that moment, Norman returns his neighbor, but this time Norman himself is grumpy. In fact, Norman had been dancing with the porcupine and had been stung by the porcupine and has needles sticking out. It's very, it's great. You should check it out. Uh, But the point at the end of Grumpy Monkey is that when Norman shows up in pain, when Norman shows up grumpy, Jim realizes it's actually okay for him too to be grumpy. And the book ends with them sitting together both grumpy and yet now it says jim felt just a little bit better Um, here's the beautiful thing about that story Uh, it is a articulation as dr chinway williams said of showing up in someone's suffering but here's what's even more profound as i have pondered this book over (laughs) and over and over again Uh, god uh, does not just unintentionally or accidentally find god's self there in the midst of our suffering instead god intentionally chooses to enter into our suffering for us and with us so that god can be with us in the hard things we are facing Uh, when you look at jesus christ it is the reminder even as we're going to now in just a moment go to this table that god has not accidentally found himself able to relate to your suffering, to your grumpiness, but God has chosen to enter in to your suffering, to be with you in it. So uh, while that does not on its own solve every mental health struggle, while there is definite need for support and help and treatment if you are struggling with any mental health or if your children are struggling with mental health, I think the only way we as a Christian community could become the hopeful people we are called to be is if we know and believe firmly deep down inside that God will not only show up, but God will enter into our suffering to know us in it, and will enter into the suffering even of our children um, as they themselves will find the hard things in life facing them. So this morning, would you pray with me that we might recover this kind of hope? God, we know there are many children represented here uh, by us who are currently struggling, um, who may be experiencing some sort of struggle, uh, all the way from just a general sadness and grumpiness all the way to true and deep anxiety and depression. Lord, I pray this morning would be just a reminder of hope for us, that there can be hope for them, that as we show up in their lives, as we enter in, that we could actually be these signs of love, these signs of you, God, to the children in our lives. And yet, I finally do, Lord, want to pray for us, for us as a community. I particularly want to pray for those here who have sensed a loss of hope in themselves. They don't really know what it is that they have to offer to the next generation. They don't know why they would face into this challenging task of perhaps considering bringing a child into this world. And Lord, I pray as we ponder your word, we remember, we remember that you show up, that you enter in, and that you want to give us hope that no matter what we are facing, God, you can restore and redeem. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.